From Hagerstown, Maryland, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Cumberland Valley bring you another episode of their podcast. This week, we're here talking with Chad Prinky. We're here to talk about construction industry during and after the pandemic and how we manage that industry. So we're here this morning with uh, Chad Prinky, which is a well-known consultant in the construction industry and has lots of years of expertise in, in uh, dealing with all aspects of construction. Um, and most of the time, you know, the, the really easy aspects of construction, because everybody knows construction is a very easy and simplistic uh, 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 industry to be involved in. Right. <laughs> so with that, I'll let you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your expertise and what you do. That's good. Thank you very much, uh, Amos. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I, um, so I, I have got my own consulting business. It is called Well-Built Construction Consulting. And our solutions focus exclusively on the building industry. Our clients are owners and developers, uh, contractors, and we help to build better construction companies and better project teams uh, by delivering strategic consulting, facilitation services, and peer roundtable environments for construction executives. Um, we, we really stand for positive change in the construction industry. And one of the things that I uh, often talk about is you know, making it harder to be a crappy construction company and thrive. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is really changing at its core some of the reward systems that focus on low bid, low bid, low bid, um, instead of focusing uh, people on the right outcomes, which are better project outcomes overall for everybody, better buildings, uh, better schedules, better better timelines, which ultimately uh, cost less. Uh, so I think I think if we can uh, pull that off, um, it'll be a magic trick. <laughs> it's one day at a time. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, really want, you know, one person, one company at a time. So you're suggesting that a better built building um, with a lower cost of uh, sustaining over a period of time would be better than building a really crappy building with bad materials and bad labor um, at a cheaper rate. That, that's, that's astonishing. I, I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> well, it's, it's, amazing to me that we haven't made that shift how how has that not happened right how how have people not connected that obvious dot um you know but uh but but you know the the majority of i mean you're the majority of cons commercial construction projects over 80 percent of commercial construction projects are over budget um, yes it, you know it, it's it continues to be a problem over 80 percent of commercial construction projects are past schedule and uh, over 50 percent of them end up in some sort of litigation there's major problems. So, I mean, we have, we, we're in the United States and we have a, a wonderful, a very uh, a great government. Um, would we be better to just let them decide on how these buildings, especially when we get to the institutional sides? I mean, you know, should we just maybe, rather than us trying to fix the industry, maybe we should let them tell us what we should do and how to go about it. I mean, what do you think about that? 
Well, I, I so in, in general, I'm real uncomfortable with allowing governments to tell me much thing. You know, just just in general. But but what what I will say is that um, there are on a really small scale, government's actually kind of an interesting um, uh, sampling of people who can do, who can actually drive this positive change because of government procurement processes and standards, because they can standardize things on a very small scale, like across the country, there are some counties, for example, that are absolutely crushing it. They're, they're bringing in projects way faster. They're bringing them in uh, at a way higher quality. And it's because they've adopted different procurement practices. And on some level, I think the private sector could learn from those folks. Uh, but, but what I think really happened is that those officials paid very close attention to people who were from the private sector who were telling them you're, you're doing it wrong. And, and, uh, and so you may be in one of the, if you're listening to this, you may be in one of those areas where, you know, doing business with your County or doing business with your city is actually a very profitable and successful endeavor for everyone involved, where at the end they have a cheaper building that is better built. Uh, you know, they've, they've done the impossible. And, and I think that is happening in, in some places, certainly on both a private and public scale. I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, on that note, um, which I, I'm, you know, going to give a, a quick plug for ABC as a whole, um, you know, that is a great way for when people are involved in a, any type of association and the counties, county commissioners, they have an association, you know, the governors have an association, everybody has one, right? And, uh, you know, to go seek out these counties and these municipalities and these cities where it is working and try to understand what it is that they're doing, um, which in most cases is most of the time what we would consider probably to be common sense um, on how they approach those types of buildings. Now, with what your goal is and what you do in the construction industry, um, trying to create a better industry that, um, you know, concentrates on the outcome rather than just the lowest bid. What do you think about uh, this crazy pandemic that we've just went through? Has it helped us get closer? In the short term, I think it's pushed us further away. We've got, um, it's understandably so, I'm not passing any judgment, but I think that owners and developers right now are really paranoid. The, the, the ones that I'm talking to are very concerned. Paranoid may be overstating it. Some are paranoid. Uh, but they're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're uh, very concerned about being taken advantage of in a wildly fluctuating uh, uh, market. You know, obviously the cost of materials, as we're talking now, probably just changed by 20%. Absolutely. And uh, and and in you know, probably more expensive, you know, probably not less expensive. So it's it's pretty intense out there, and so there's a really heightened focus on driving down the cost of construction. And if you look at the total cost of construction right now, labor uh, is making up a smaller percentage. The, the companies you hire are making up a smaller percentage. Uh, contractors, that is, are making up a smaller percentage of the work than the, than the materials themselves. Uh, historically, that's um, rare, right? That's not yeah. usually the way that it works. So I think contractors are bearing the brunt. I think there are lots and lots of 
well-intentioned general contractors that are having to push subcontractors to the brink on the pricing that they're offering. So it's gotten, it's gotten pretty intense, uh, you know, in, in the short term here in terms of, you know, how projects are procured, but uh, I think it's temporary. Do you think through this phase that we're in right now with uh, increased material prices, pressure on the contractors to bring their labor costs down, uh, do you foresee and, and kind of, you know, I, I guess it's a loaded question, um, do you foresee worse litigation or more litigation over the immediate near future over these jobs because all of a sudden you quoted the job six months ago and a two before cost $6 and now a two before cost $12 yeah. and you're over budget and you have all these issues? Or do you think, you know, that all contractors are very understanding, general contractors and subcontractors, and everybody's gonna share in the cost, increased cost of materials, and everybody will be happy and go home. Case by case. Uh, if overall, will there be an increase in litigation? Uh, all, all you lawyers listening, I would say, uh, you know, congratulations, uh, you'll be busy. Um, I, I, I do think there's gonna be a lot uh, there, there's so much up for interpretation, right? Who saw this coming? Who, who could have envisioned this? And contractually, the changes that that are immediately being made, but that hadn't been in there, these, you know, the flexibility on on material pricing and you know, how how contractually we'll handle it if material pricing goes up. People are putting in all kinds of clauses now that weren't in their contracts that they're dealing with procuring right now. So it's you, you, I, I am seeing really high performing teams talk openly about this early in a collaborative fashion to make sure nobody gets hurt because it's going to cost more money to be in court than yep. it is to collaborate and solve these issues together. So I'm seeing high performing teams partner up and do that. And that's a conversation that I'm helping to facilitate every day. So the two takeaways I, I got out of that one, make sure um, when we are uh, securing new work as contractors, uh, make sure that we're reading the contracts and, and understanding the fine print. Um, and secondly, communication, um, make sure all parties involved can have that open communication and understand those things and try to work on a solution as the problem arises, not at the end of the job. What That's exactly right. And what I have found, and I think if you, anybody who's listening, if you think about it, you probably have found as well in more cases than not, is that people really aren't out to get you. People really aren't trying to set you up for the most part. For the most part, the, the, the reason that, people end up in litigation, the reason that people end up in, um, you know, unsolvable issues is because they didn't effectively resolve the early signs through open lines, communication, honesty, humility, putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, which is really tough. And, and simply asking for help. And I think today, the subcontractors that are doing that early and clear with their generals, the generals that are doing that early and clear with the owners, 
Um, those are the high performing teams I'm talking about it, it, of, of kind of getting together and saying, how do we make sure nobody gets hurt? Because it's also not fair that the owner gets destroyed here and, yep. and, their, and their pro forma doesn't work. That's a great way to make sure that they stop building future projects. Yeah. At the end of the day, the owner wants whatever that building is, they want it delivered on time. Um, and, you know, from my experiences, most of the time, if it's within reason or they understand it up front, um, they can give the okay, like, yeah, hey, uh, let's go with steel studding instead of, uh, instead of wood because we know we can get it and it's cheaper. And so it's, you know, communication, communication, communication. Um, the days of, uh, of, especially as volatile as the pricing is now, the days of, you know, well, we're just going to eat that. And, you know, at the end of the job, we'll try to figure out how to, you know, save somewhere else or, you know, and all of a sudden you end up with, uh, uh, you end up with a building that only has every other window um, or, you know, the windows are put in, but no glass um, because we couldn't afford it at the end or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So through the pandemic, um, everybody has experienced changes. Um, you know, I, I, I think if we could have built buildings via Zoom, there would have been somebody trying to build a building via Zoom. But because now everybody's more comfortable with Zoom, you and I are sitting in two different places doing this interview right now and that maybe we would have had to drive for and plan an entire day because we're a couple hours apart. Um, so there's a good thing, you know, um, most days. Now, some days, you know, I, I've experienced a couple times recently because now we're having live meetings and Zoom meetings. So I say, well, I can go to that live meeting at nine and then schedule myself a Zoom meeting at 10 because I can drive and do that. And now you have people that maybe pay attention, maybe don't. So there could be some downsides. But what, in your experiences, what things should we keep that we've gained out of the pandemic? Are there any lessons learned that you've seen that these are things that we as a construction industry need to continue to use going forward and continue to cultivate. Wow, that's, that's such a cool question. I, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the Zoom and, and you know, some of the efficiencies that we picked up there in a moment. But I, I'm going to start with this, which is um, I watched construction companies become more flexible and innovative in a shorter period of time than I've ever seen before. And what I would encourage us all to retain from the pandemic is just how manageable change really can be. In other words, in other yep. words, Right, like these are the same companies that wouldn't change a simple policy for years because we'd always done it that way, and you don't want to piss Billy off. And I don't know, right? You know, so somebody's got a real hair up their ass on that particular issue or whatever it is, right? And and so there there were all of these, you know, th there was a lack, a general lack of progress, and I would use that word really and underscore it, progress in a company-by-company company basis in the building industry through a mindset of sort of, it ain't broke, don't fix it. We're going to keep doing what we're doing uh, in comfort zones. And what one of the biggest, what, here's what we can't lose. We can't lose the realization 
that not all change is bad and that we are capable of massive change on a massive scale in very short order. And instead of going back to your businesses and thinking and talking about those things you wish were different, I think what you can do moving forward as a construction company is realize we have control over that. And if we don't like it, we can and should make change. I think that's huge. And, uh, and it's a conversation that, you know, I have had with dozens of contractors uh, specifically who I think had to be the most nimble during the pandemic and the most flexible and just reminding them that they, they, I mean, that it was heroic what they did and, and that they have the ability to do that much more often than they do. And, uh, and so I think that's cool. And I'll talk about just two other simple things that I think we can't lose. Um, one is a eh, simple, one is what you alluded to, which is the efficiency of scheduling a virtual meeting. <clears throat> um, not everything needs to be an in-person meeting and some things need to be a little bit more than a phone call. And I think we have picked up some value in everybody getting comfortable with virtual meetings, which gives you the ability to look people in the eye. It gives you the ability to make sure that people are at least gauged to see if people are making, uh, you know, paying attention. And uh, the, the impact that, that body language brings to a conversation is tangible. And particularly those conversations where we need to influence one another, where we need to navigate differences and challenges between one another. If, we, if we're in two different cities, I don't need to jump on a plane necessarily uh, we can we can actually jump on a Zoom and we can get resolutions. So that's one. And then the second thing, or I guess the third thing overall that I would say we should keep coming away from the pandemic is a heightened focus on the result and a little bit less uh, micromanagement of the when did you show up to the office? When did you leave? What work, you know, did you take your lunch break? Did you, you know, that kind of stuff. I think one of the things that a lot of companies discovered is that if they simply made it clear to their people what outcomes they needed by when they needed those outcomes in a largely work from home environment for, for much of the staff, they were able to totally get that stuff done in a remote work environment. And there have been increases in overall employee happiness and work-life balance that have come from the pandemic. And so I'm not a proponent of people not returning to the office. I don't think that's quite right. And I do think there's a lot to be gained from being in the same place as your colleagues and having the ability to just holler at somebody down the hall and walk into the office and sort something out. But I do think that we've picked up an increase in flexibility that we can't lose, particularly as we look to attract the next generation into the industry, which is go, it's a heavy lift as it is. If, if we're the only industry that, that is still married to, you know, uh, eight to five 30 in the office every day, Absolutely. Um, we're going to get blown by. The, yeah, I, uh, Interestingly, you know, you think about young students that started their school career, kindergarten, first grade, this past two years. And uh, I have a daughter, she's, uh, she'll be eight uh, in September, she's in first grade. So kindergarten, she only won half a year and then was, you know, at home. 
And then first grade, they had this weird schedule and they were cyber days. And, and so I, I said to my daughter, uh, uh, school's over now. And I said, hey, next year you get to go to school five days a week. And she looked at me and she said, what? She said, what about Cyber Wednesday? I said, well, that was something special. She's like, what do you mean? She's like, I have Cyber Wednesday. No, you'll go to school five days a week. Her mind was blown. She's like, I, 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 no, I want my Cyber Wednesday. And I'm fast forwarding and I'm thinking, you know, in 10 years when she's 18 and hitting the workforce, you know, she's going to be going to work and saying, I want my Cyber Wednesday. Like, I don't want to come to work on Wednesday. So, I think as time goes on, there's going to be some sort of expectation of, hey, we have this ability. I don't need to come to the office for this meeting on Friday. I could do this from home. And I think we, I agree with you. I think we need to keep a little bit of that flexibility. Um, and I think especially in those very first few months of the pandemic, I saw specifically amongst high-performing businesses C-level executives that all of a sudden gained a little bit of family life and happiness back. Um, so I think that is super valuable um, to, to consider to continue to try to manage that. Now I've already seen a few people that as the mask mandates have started to disappear around us, that they're right back at it. You know, they're they're they 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 just fell right back in and they're already unhappy. Yeah. So I I I think we need to, to consider that. And then another point to your first point of how flexible the construction industry was, being uh, the executive of an ABC chapter, I have access across the country and get emails from other chapter presidents. And when the safety protocols, the construction industry was the very first industry that said, we're going to continue to run and we're going to continue to work our way through this. And I saw uh, you know, in the middle of the night, construction crews that were going in and sanitizing tools and doing all of these things. Overnight, the construction industry said, we're going to figure out how to stay safe and we're going to sanitize, you know, man lifts and forklifts and tools in the off hours and we're going to make sure our people stay safe. And were there a few COVID cases in construction sites? Absolutely. I'm sure they're, you know, they're everywhere. But it was well minimized. And for the most part, we were able to continue to work as an industry and keep everybody safe. And it's unbelievable that that happened almost overnight, you know, it, and so we can do anything like that. Um, it, and it brings back, which is interesting. I, I just was doing some reading on a gentleman. His name is Victor Frankel. And, uh, you know, kind of his, the, the, if you could summarize everything he's about, he said, the last human freedom is your ability to be able to choose your attitude because you can't always change your circumstances. And so whether it be a pandemic or it be a bad job um, that we're on, you know, we just have a bad situation, that situation and circumstance might not be able to change. But we as a business, we as an industry can choose how we're going to react to that and what our attitude to that is going to be. And uh, for anybody listening that doesn't know who Viktor Frankl is, Google search him. Um, he was a survivor of, uh, of uh, the Jewish uh, death camps during, uh, or Nazi death camps during uh, World War II. But it's pretty amazing and profound. And it just, it brings me back to that, um, hearing what you were saying. Yeah, it's, uh, what is it, man's search for meaning? Yes. 
um, that that is a it's a great book for keeping in context what whatever the hell you're going through. You got it. As he recounts that, yeah, that is that is powerful stuff. So there were some positive things. Is there anything negative that uh, that happened through the pandemic other than you know staying at home, wearing mask, and all of those obvious things? Is there anything that that we think you know? Hey, we we don't want this. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the striking the balance uh, between as we as we've just talked about. We don't want to lose some of the efficiencies we picked up in the ability of having a Zoom meeting. We don't want to lose some of the work-life balance we picked up by allowing more telework and work-from-home situations. But there's also the balance that must be, you know, hit, which is we also don't want to lose what it is to be one team. We don't want to lose what it is to, to you know, jump on the phone and collaborate with, or, you know, walk down the hall and collaborate with one another, you know, sit in a meeting build relationships with your colleagues and, and things like that. And so I definitely think that there has been a heavy over-reliance. I mean, it, it's been happening for decades, uh, but, but now, uh, my God, you know, went into a hyperdrive, uh, a heavy over-reliance on email. And email is absolutely no way to communicate when, you're, when the goal is collaboration. I can't tell you how many times a day I tell my clients, you, you, you see that email that you're about to hit send on, pick up the phone and, and read it. <laughs> just, yep. just stop, stop <laughs> doing that. You're, because what you're going to get is a nasty gram in return. You're going to get somebody who read that with the wrong tonality. You're going to, you know, just create more muddle. Do me a favor, call the person, have the conversation. Once you've talked to them, then send an email afterward that says, hey, great talking to you. Just for, for clarity's sake, make sure that we're both on the same page. This was my translation of what we agreed to. Are we on the same page? I appreciate it, right? Like, th th there's your steps. And everybody knows, like, this is 101 for the folks who are listening to that. I guarantee. And everybody, but everybody's also probably guilty. If Absolutely. <laughs> right? So... This isn't new, but, but the, what the pandemic definitely did was it gave people a lot to hide behind on that front and be like, well, they weren't in the office and I didn't want to call en enough, right? You know, let's, we got to recommit to the telephone. We got to recommit to, to, you know, getting together and yeah, let's go ahead and use Zoom meetings where it's appropriate. Um, but, you know, let, maybe let's not fire employees via Zoom. Are you sure? <laughs> What about breaking up, you know, with your girlfriend via Zoom? That's okay. That's actually no, fine. Depends on how long you've been together. Okay. Okay. And if you met on Zoom, yes. Yeah. Right. Better than a text. The, uh, so, <laughs> interestingly, uh, what you said, text, uh, you know, we have all these different ways. So if you do need to collaborate with somebody and you, you call them and they don't answer and you let a voicemail, um, it, it's okay then, right, to follow up with an email, followed by a text message, followed by a Facebook message, followed by a LinkedIn message, because one of those is going to get to that person, right? You're not going to annoy them. You're, you're just trying to get an answer. Oh, my God. It's it's such a... <laughs> okay, so like rule number one, be here <laughs> to get a hold of. How about that, right? Like, you know, try, try your best. If everybody does their part and tries to be not a huge pain in the ass to get a hold of... That'll help us in this process. But then if we then look at rule number two, uh, you know, I, I would I would here's my uh, what I always say to people when you're trying to get a hold of somebody. My favorite email in the world to send is when do you have five minutes to talk? 
My yeah. favorite text message in the world to send is I want to talk to you about X, Y, Z. Uh, let me know when you have five minutes to talk. Right. And, um, you know, let's surface those things to a phone conversation. And, uh, and then once you've discussed it, you know, send an email, but you're, you're right, man. People have way, way, way too many inputs in their world. And, um, you know, it, you can't keep up with all that. Not effectively. That's why to me, it's all, it all kind of has to funnel to let's, let's talk. Let's actually have a discussion. And I'll add as well, a new trick tool, rather not a trick. It's a tool um, that I've started using. I have a habit Sometimes you are required to send an email, you know, or, you know, to, to converse that way. And many times my emails are, I don't want to say mistaken, but it would be very easy for somebody to reply, uh, uh, reply to an email that I sent, um, you know, I don't know, maybe an employee in the office, I'm asking for something. I'm pretty dry and straightforward. I need to have the report that I asked for yesterday by 12 o'clock today. And so then the reply is a defensive reply that, oh, I... I really don't care. I just want it by 12 o'clock today. I realized that I didn't tell you that. And uh, at any rate, um, I've started employing a tool called Grammarly, which I, I'm not trying to plug items, but you can actually pick the tone. So you can say it's, it's a neutral email or I want it to be positive or I want it to be negative. And, and it'll actually help you kind of change the wording around a little bit um, so that I don't use it for everything. But if I have kind of a robust email that I need to send somebody and I want to make sure that it's taken in a positive light, I will actually use that tool because my, you know, you got to know yourself. And, and I know that when I write an email, it's going to be very dry and to the point. I mean, many times I do bullet points, you know? And so anyhow, that's just a, a little tool to help me be a little nicer when I have to uh, respond via email. That's awesome. And now that's using technology to solve human problems. I love yeah. that. Yes. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about, um, you know, not being the lowest bidder is, is sometimes okay. Um, what can contractors do, you know, that are out there in the business? And I know this answer ranges because some contractors are going to call me after they listen to this and say, that was really great, but I only have two employees and I'm in the field all the time and I can't do half of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I would encourage them that they probably can. They just need to, you know, they need to think about it and be, you know, uh, uh, make a, a conscious effort. Um, but what can a contractor do to make themselves stand out as a good contractor other than always being the lowest bidder? Because we all know that contractor that is lowest bidder every single time, but nobody wants to deal with. They exist in every market. So how do you, how does a contractor help themselves to stand out on everything other than uh, being lowest bidder? So, I mean, I could answer that question, you know, for, for probably for an hour and, 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 you know, maybe more. I'll, I'll use a quick story. I, I, yesterday I played golf. Um, it was exceedingly hot, but it was a lot of fun with, <laughs> um, with a, a, an executive of a general contractor, <clears throat> about a I don't know, 40 or $50 million general contractor. And, um, I was talking to him about their growth because that 40 to 50 million is, um, 
you know, up by about 30 to 40 million uh, compared to where they were in uh, 2016, right? So they've, they've grown immensely in, uh, in the past five years. And I said to, and I, I wasn't blowing smoke, I mean, it was the truth. I said, you know, I have never met a subcontractor that has a bad word to say about you guys. And when you're in growth mode, um, that's a pretty impressive thing. And, you know, he, he said, we, we are, uh, well, I'm trying to remember the words he used. I think he said, we're weird about taking <laughs> care of our subcontractors. Um, we work really, really hard to have their back. And uh, what we've found is that we have no problem being competitive on any of the work that we pursue because we've got a team of people that want us to win that job. And, um, and if I ask for help, I always get it. And I try not to ask when I really don't need it. And, um, and I said, well, that really explains to me the, the subcontractor side of the growth equation. Um, what's the, what's the general contractor, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the, 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 the owner side of the growth equation. So how, how have you gotten more owners to buy from you? And he said, our projects go smooth and owners are telling other owners their projects went smooth. And, uh, and so here, here's, here's, I guess I'll summarize what I'm talking about. This is one strategy. It doesn't mean it has to be yours. But what I take away from that conversation more than anything is that they made a strategic decision to say, we're going to be the general contractor that has partnerships with our subs, legitimate partnerships with our subcontractors. We're going to put them first. We're going to talk to them all the time. We realize we are nothing without them. Those were his words. And we are, we're going to, to, to bank on our subcontractor relationships, making our projects home run projects. And we're going to bank on our subcontractor relationships, making our pricing very competitive without having to beat people up. And we are going to use that as our strategy to create positive word of mouth. Amos, you and I could sit here and brainstorm 10 other strategies right now for coming up with how do we create positive word of mouth? Yep. Right? Their strategy was let's put the subcontractor first. I can think of other general contractors where their strategy is all value engineering and it's all being really creative. And I can think of other ones where it's, you know, we are the absolute bar none best at pre-construction. You're going to want to get us involved early. We're going to be your partner. You're never going to want to compete. I could come, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Um, I don't care um, what your strategy is necessarily. I care that your strategy is designed to give you an incredible reputation because at the end of the day, it's an incredibly small and insular community. Right? Yep. And, and, and I don't care where you're doing business. Everybody knows everybody in the construction business in your area. That's the deal. And if you're building a reputation, a positive reputation, positive word of mouth, you're, you are going to thrive. So, so, you know, 
And then on top of it, you got to be competitive. I, I, I would, I, I'm not going to ever try to tell somebody that you can get away with being, you know, uh, 20 points above the market and expect to win work. That's that you do, you do have to be smart and be in the range, but you definitely do not have to be low. I, I would really, really emphasize that point, but I don't work with a single company that is regularly low. So I, I've heard you say multiple times, uh, about strategy. Um, would it be fair to say that good high-performing uh, construction companies, uh, you know, all of them have a strategy of some sort um, or a strategic plan? Um, would you recommend that all businesses, um, all construction businesses, regardless of their size, really should have a plan or, or is it okay? You know, if you're just a small electrical firm and you just, you know, repair uh, some electrical things in uh, in industrial buildings, and occasionally get a construction project. You only have three employees. Why do you need a strategy? I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, you're just going to write it on a piece of paper and stick it, uh, you know, or put it on a plaque in the in the hallway of your uh, one office uh, garage where you have your van. What? Why does it matter? Do you want to be in business? For the, I really, I don't mean this as darky as it's going to sound. I really don't. It's, there are people, like I can think of, there's one guy right now, he's a, a, a good buddy, not a client, uh, but a guy that I've golfed with, you know, uh, and fished with. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. And, uh, but he said to me, um, yeah, I was talking to him about strategy and he said, man, I don't want to have a business in about eight years. And I was like, well, oh, and you don't need a strategy. <laughs> it's like, you're good. You know, your strategy over the next, all right, so you're making money. It, it, it's like, I could be making more, but I'm okay. And like, I, I, I like working exactly the amount that I'm working. I've got a handful of guys that they, they are, that we're all on the same basic glide path to retirement. I'm like, cool. Hey, that's, you do what you're going to do. I think most companies don't fit that description. I think um, if you don't fit that description, you need a strategy. And, and, and even, I, I recently actually produced a video. I do a lot of videos on on LinkedIn uh, with just thoughts that occur to me, um, which uh, you know um, probably annoy people to varying degrees. But I get enough positive reinforcement that I keep doing it. Uh, but uh, but I, uh, I, I in, in one of the videos that I recently did, I said, you know, I think you need to be if if you're a contractor today, you need to be making a decision about becoming a bigger, more organized company if you intend to be in business 10 years from now. Um, I don't know the exact data. I wish I did, but there, it, it, this is worth looking up. In the uh, 1920s, 30s, early days of the automotive, uh, of the automobile, uh, there were thousands of automobile manufacturers in the world. Thousands, right? I think something crazy like uh, over a thousand in Germany alone, right? Or something like that. Um, today, you got what, six in Germany? Yep. And I would argue that's been a good thing. I, and yeah. another, what I'd say, when I say a good thing, I don't mean like less companies is better. What I mean is, as the industry matured, the threshold or the barrier to, to really be 
a solid company in the industry kept getting higher and higher and fewer and fewer companies had the organization and the willingness to invest and the ability to invest to keep them in that game. And so, and so eventually we got to a place where we have, you know, six auto manufacturers in Germany. They all make fantastic cars. They're all super safe. Right. And, and imagine if there were a thousand automobile manufacturers, like, are you in the one that, you know, it, it, you can't, you get into a rear end collision, it catches fire. What was that? <laughs> right. um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, you know, um, I think the construction industry, it's long overdue. And this people have been, people have been prognosticating this for years and years. And so I may be, uh, I, I'm, I'm certain I'm wrong about the timeline, but I don't believe that I'm wrong about the general trend, which is there's going to be more technology you got to invest in. There's going to be more education and training that you need to invest in because our schools aren't going to do it for us. Yep. You, you, you're, you're going to have to get really good at appealing to a generation of workers who are used to uh, what's it? Digital Wednesdays, right? Or, yep. <laughs> um, and so you're going to need to be a, a better run, bigger, slightly more bureaucratic, probably uh, organization that's investing more money. And if that doesn't sound appealing to you, you should be having a strategy to not be a company in 10 years and make a move 10 years, 20 years. I don't, you know, right. Obviously my timeline, yep. I guess, but I would, I just hope that you get out of the business because you want to, not because you get blown up by the market. Right. But you, I do believe that you're going to have to make those kinds of choices and that not every contractor wants to be that company. And I'm not mad at you and I don't blame you. I just also think that you're on a, a dangerous road to, to um, irrelevance. So, you know, let's say, uh, and uh, I, I'm going to preload this for you. Uh, I've seen it happen. Let's say a company, they're in growth, they, they get new employees, they create a, a strategic plan and they have a great mission and they have values and they have all of those things. And, you know, the top three executives sat down with a consultant and they develop all of this. Um, and uh, then they leave that room and, you know, a year down the road, those three are the only three that know what the mission and the strategy and the values of the company are. Um, is that something that we should keep locked in our desk drawer and only remove it once every three years to take a look at it and make ourselves feel good? Or is it something that we should share with all of the employees that are out there so they can work towards those strategic goals? Yeah, there, so people want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And you'll get more out of your employees if your employees are bought into something that, you know, excites them about where the organization's going. You'll also identify employees that maybe shouldn't be employees through that process. Yeah, um, but we, we give them a paycheck. I mean, why should they need to feel anything different than that, right? I mean, they get a paycheck. They, they should uh, work every day, right? I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is an old school and now dangerous mentality. And I say dangerous be, for your company. Not, not, you know, like I, making no social commentary 
Like, I don't care if this makes you mad or not. Employees will not stay with your company if they're not bought into what's going on. If those employees are under the age of 45. Yep. So, you know, and, and I, we kind of went down a rabbit hole, I guess, but um, so if you as a construction company are experiencing significantly high turnover and you believe as the executive or the manager or, or wherever you're at in that business that you're achieving that high turnover because all of the new generation, the younger generation coming in are all terrible. Is that a sign that it really is true or are you going to have to change a little bit in order to keep those employees or maybe they should be making a strategic plan to get out of business? That's well, I mean, that, well said. Yeah, I mean, you just, I think that's exactly right, Amos. It's like, again, you can get pissed off about the incoming generation of employees all you want. You're entitled to be grumpy. I'm good with that. You just can't, you can't live in an alternate reality where you pretend like that's something that, you know, is uh, unacceptable and that uh, you're just not going to live with. Okay, well, if you choose not to live with it, if you choose not to manage through that, if you choose not to figure out how to deal with the, those realities, you're just making a plan to not be in business, which is a totally reasonable plan. I just, again, hope that you're doing that on purpose and that you don't wake up and discover that you're not in business and you kind of wanted to be. Yep. So kind of with that, um, what, you know, the, the organizations such as ours, like ABC, from your standpoint, do you see value in organizations participating in industry associations such as ABC? Um, and I'm not just trying to merely plug ABC. I don't know what your answer may be. You may tell me absolutely not. Um, I'm hoping you don't. But uh, <laughs> but do you see value in folks participating, um, not only from an educational standpoint, but just from networking with their peers across the country? Yeah, big time. So so you know, you, I, I think you know my answer to this is yes. I, I so I'm an ABC. Uh, member myself, right? Uh, well built is a, is an ABC member in the Metro Washington chapter. We um, get a ton of value from our membership, and the the biggest value that we get as a service provider to the industry is um, providing value to the uh, association. It gives us an ability to kind of showcase um, what we do while helping, and, uh, and 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 so without doing a commercial. I have people that contact us, uh, which is a gift. And that's, and that's something that, you know, uh, if you're able to provide a free service to somebody or a, or a very low price service to somebody through the association, provide value to them. And, and that creates, um, you know, goodwill and relationships and a belief in what you're doing. That's, that's uh, absolutely a gift for us. But for contractors, um, I, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say, you've heard me probably say this in some context in the past. Uh, I don't believe that everybody should be an ABC member, right? I yep. believe that you need to share certain values if you want to be an ABC member. And I won't go about listing those now that, that that's encroaching on something that you know a whole heck of a lot more about than I do. But the point is, if, if you uh, share values 
with ABC. You have a desire to grow your business. You have a desire to be a better business. You have a desire to be in business. Associations are a wonderful vehicle to be your advocate and your partner um, and to surround yourself with other like-minded construction companies that, that are helping each other to get there. And then obviously, just like anything else, if, you, if, if all you do is write a check and, and, uh, and not participate, then, you know, you're, you're going to get into, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And I would argue that that's not putting much into it. I would agree. Um, uh, you know, just writing the check um, and, and doing nothing with it isn't it really, in my mind, no different than putting your strategic plan in a locked uh, safe and taking it out once every three years. Um, That's right. It doesn't do you any good. Um, so kind of, uh, I guess, my, my last question, um, we've covered all the amazing things the industry has done um, through the pandemic. Um, you and I are about the same age, so we both remember the 07 through, uh, you know, uh, 2010 downturn yeah. um, that happened, which was a crisis at the time. We had a pandemic. Now we have volatile uh, material pricing. Do you think um, over the rest of our lifetime, where there be more crises that we need to uh, interact with? And then the second part of that is, you know, do you have any thoughts on what we can do as an industry to prepare ourselves so that we are even more nimble, um, more uh, proactive in, in making sure that our companies are ready to withstand whatever that next crisis could be? So the answer to the first question is, I'm an optimist, but damn it, probably. <laughs> uh, right. You know, I'm, I am really an optimistic person and I, and I, I really do believe in the mindset of plenty and more and better and improvement acts in some ways as kind of a, um, you know, a protection against heading into crises. So, yeah. so for example, just as you look back at, at, at 07 through, through, you know, 2007 through 2010, there were obviously, there were obviously some fundamental um, problems at that time with the financial markets. Nobody's yep. going to argue that there was, there, you know, and there, there've been books written by way smarter people than I, and my understanding of it is very limited, but, um, there, there were some real, you know, actual problems with the uh, financial market. But there's no, this is my gut. And I, I don't have any data or, or you know, whatever. I, I can't produce a study to prove it. But I believe deeply that that recession was prolonged by pessimism, negativity, and fear. Yep more than by markets. And uh, obviously those two things are, are linked. And, and so you know, we, we have a choice about how we see things. And, and, um, and if you see the possibility and the opportunity in things, and we as, a, as, a, as a, an, an economy in, in the world, in the United States, 
can look at that, I believe that we make ourselves more resilient to, uh, you know, future issues. So, so, so yeah, so I think, I think we, we have to prepare, I think tangibly. So if I get out of the touchy feely thing, which is like, think positive thoughts. Um, (laughs) and, and I, and I get into something, you know, tangibly that the industry should be thinking about. Here's something that, that is really mind boggling that, that I've been wrestling with and that I'll, I'll, you know, leave people to, uh, you know, comment on and think about, uh, on their own. But I think that there is a real chance that we're going to be redefining uh, full-time employment, quote unquote, uh, over the next few decades. That through automation, through robotics, through wonderful progress in technologies, the need for for employees is going to actually diminish. Think about how many truck drivers will ultimately be, I mean, it's coming, will ultimately be, uh, you know, no longer driving trucks. We're moving to a safer, better, more automated world uh, when it comes to driving. I'm, it's, it's a, it's a brutal topic and I hate thinking about the impact that that makes in people's lives, but it's coming. The same can be said for construction labor. Um, there, there are massive changes coming down the line uh, for construction labor in the vein of robotics. There's, you know, 3D printing and there's, you know, there's all kinds of things that are, that are coming down the line on that front. And I'm not trying to freak people out. I'm also not tell, I'm predicting exactly what's going to happen and when. But, but I do believe that there's going to be a general trend toward less reliance on employees in general. What that means, if we want to continue to have full employment, is that we may actually be employing the same, roughly the same number of people doing tasks that we weren't employing them for before, but you know, doing doing tasks that that um, are new, and probably paying them a whole hell of a lot more than we thought we would be paying them, so that they can make a living wage. There are some really interesting, and here's the bottom line. I want industry to grapple with this and address this because I don't want the freaking government to do so. Yep. And I think the, the more we get real about that and the more that we, the, the more that we sort of say like, okay, as, as industry leaders, let's get together and sort of start thinking and talking about the same as the same as the construction industry did when it came to COVID protocols, there was no government that had better answers to COVID protocols than the construction industry themselves when they pulled together their resources and said, this is how we protect our people because they care about their people, right? Yes. We care about uh, creating employment. We care about um, you know, t- taking care of all those people that we uh, employ today. Let's not wait for the government to mandate that a full-time job is now 20 hours. Let's start figuring out what, what, how we want to redefine full-time and, and how we're going to make our business models work with that. And, and let's have answers ready before these things really create crises. And to that point, it's interesting. Uh, last week, I was just at the uh, our LegCon national uh, uh, board meeting. And uh, some of the conversations that came up around education and, and our apprenticeship programs and all the things that we do. And uh, it hit me last week that we are kind of, uh, ABC has been at the forefront of 
technologies that are coming out and things and the internet of things in your equipment, all the, the different aspects of what is coming. But what we haven't addressed is how do we train um, the, the next generation of construction worker? And uh, I, I, I am fearful um, that we do get to a point if we don't start to act now and be proactive, that we're still going to be training, uh, you know, we're still going to be training masons on how to uh, how to butter a brick, when we should be training them on how to program the you know robot that's going to butter the brick in the future, or the extruder that's going to put the mortar out, and those types of things. Uh, first aid CPR, it took five years before they started to include, and I might be wrong. I mean, it might have been slightly more or less than that. But before they started to include AEDs in first aid and CPR training, um, so we had the technology and they were all in all these places, but nobody knew how to use the thing. So, you know, I'm on the floor having a heart attack and you're trying to read the directions on the AED. It doesn't do us any good. I'd prefer that you had a little bit of training and could save my, my life. Um, so you any other closing thoughts um, that you have? Um, you know, uh, I, I, I just, I think it, it ended up being kind of a theme of our conversation and it came up early, uh, but, but, you know, re reiterated itself a few times is that change is going to happen. Change can be really, really bad, or you can lead it and it can be yep. really good. And, and if you allow change to happen to you, <laughs> um, that'll, that'll probably be rough. But if, if you kind of take take control and, and say, these are the ways that we're going to in, in change before we have to, uh, that, that's, that's usually a smarter path and, and less um, traumatic for a business. The, uh, which will be a good segue into my, my last uh, question for you. Um, so when the pandemic got started, you know, the, the, the first week, um, I said, it, it's not going to last more than a week or two because here in Maryland, they basically said, stay home, don't, don't go to work. And uh, it was about the end of the second week that I started finding myself kind of getting angry at the situation. I can't have events. How am I going to, you know, for ABC, how, how am I going to make money? How am I going to pay the people? How am I going to? And uh, as I was walking uh, around uh, the office here by myself, because nobody else was allowed to be here, I literally looked over and saw a book sitting on my bookshelf. And I thought, huh, I, maybe I should revisit that book. And it was uh, Who Moved My Cheese, <laughs> which is a very simplistic book about change. And I realized that I was very much, you know, the, 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 the people that were waiting for it to go back and it was time to change. And so my last question, I always like to ask people on Chad's bookshelf, what is that go-to business book that you have that, uh, you know, you, you find yourself going back to and, uh, uh, you know, or the most recent that you found the most uh, impactful um, to you? I am going to plug a little known book uh, here. There's a book called The Commercial Real Estate Re uh, Revolution. Okay. Um, that is a book that I have read and reread a few different times that it's it's written by a handful of authors um and uh it's um i'm, I'm actually looking at it so it's called it, it, rex miller dean strombaum mark 
uh, I am Marino and Bill Black. And this is a group of uh, folks that worked together in the um, 2000s um, to kind of break down their impressions of why the building industry, why the commercial building industry is broken and what can be done about it. And I find the ideas therein to be a source of constant refocusing and inspiration for me and for my business when it comes to remembering that because things have always worked a certain way, doesn't mean that they will continue or should continue to do so into the future. And so it helps me when I'm feeling stubborn to get unstuck. Got it. Well, awesome. Thank you uh, uh, for joining us this morning. And uh, hey, anytime you want to come back, um, uh, you know, and talk about something, we're always glad to have you. And uh, lastly, I made myself a note. And for any of my board members or, or members that might be listening, I have to mention um, we're, we're so happy that you are an ABC member of the of the uh, Metro Washington chapter. Um, but, you know, at ABC, we do allow uh, uh, companies to be members of multiple chapters. So I just had to throw that out really? there. Really? Yeah, yeah. You you can become a member of our chapter, too. You just got to pay. Oh. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> of course. Um, but thank you very much um, for uh, for coming and joining us. Thanks for joining us today for the podcast from the Associated Builders and Contractors of Cumberland Valley. If you'd like more information about us, please check our website at abccvc.org. Until next time, thanks.